0: Well, good morning or late afternoon. Uh, Welcome to Eastlake. My name is Margo. Uh, If you haven't seen me up here before, I'm one of the other pastors here, the Werewolf Pastor. So when I'm not talking on Sundays, I'm usually connecting people with opportunities to serve in uh, the community or getting you guys to help volunteer play with kids so you guys can sit here undistracted. It's pretty great. Uh, But we've been in this series uh, called The Comparison Trap. This is week two, so if I say anything and it feels like I've jumped to any conclusions or I, I, I didn't fully illustrate something, it could could just, just be me, but it also could be uh, that maybe I covered something in the first week and you, you were out doing 4th of July stuff, we get it. Uh, but if you want to catch up on last week or if you know you're going to be gone because you're doing the vacation thing, you can find any of our previous talks at eastlaketricities.com slash talks. We have them in video format and podcasts. We try to make it as easy as possible you guys to stay connected during the summer, the hardest time sometimes to commit to a Sunday thing. So uh, this whole series has been on comparison and about how in the most recent years, comparison has kind of been on the upswing in terms of how it negatively affects our lives. And there's there's a lot of reasons for that, but a lot of people will point the blame at social media. And I think You know, social media isn't entirely bad, uh, but I think we can agree it's not entirely good. And the comparison has been on the rise because never in our life have we been more aware of what everyone else is doing at any given point in the day. Like never before in history have we known what everyone's eaten for dinner. Uh, Never in point in history have we known like what outfits they're wearing every single day if we don't see them. Uh, So social media just kind of makes us hyper aware and hypersensitive of what everyone else is doing, accomplishing, where everyone's vacationing, what car everyone drives. Even when we don't see them in real life, we know. And so it's hard to escape that. It's hard to escape the comparison trap. Uh, So week one, we talked about how comparison uh, leads us to think ugly thoughts about other people, right? Because we see what they have, we see where they're vacationing, we see what anniversary present her husband got her, and we start to compare our lives. And then it starts to create like ugliness in our thoughts to, towards other people because they don't deserve that. Or I know he's a shady business guy. Why did he get that promotion? Uh, She's not a great mom. How did her kid get, you know, all these awards and all these things? We start to think ugly thoughts towards other people, and really that undermines uh, one of our big purposes for existing, which is to to help other people to be a light in the world. Because if we're so busy disliking other people and focusing on ourselves, we can't do that. Uh, So that's a little bit about week one. Uh, But the second week, we want to continue going to show, shed light on some of the other dangers of the comparison trap of living in this. And we're going to talk about a story that um, if, you ha- if you've if you been to church before or if your mom dropped you off at VBS because she needed some me time, which is totally a thing. It's not a new thing. It's an old thing. We've been doing it for generations. Drop the kids off at of VBS a week to yourself. It's wonderful. Uh, you may have heard this, this, this story before, which is called the prodigal son, uh, which really, for all purposes, we're just going to call it the lost son. Because Jesus was telling three stories, Uh, one was about a lost sheep, one was about a lost coin, and then he throws out particle and kind of throws off the flow. So we're just going to say, the lost son. And so if you've heard it before and you're like, all right, sweet, I can like skip out and, you know, go to the bathroom and then just drink some cold brew and life is good, I encourage you to stay, to listen in a little bit. Hopefully you'll take something away from this uh, that you hadn't before when you're sitting in VBS eating a pixie stick. So, you know, there's hope for us yet. So we're going to start, dive right into the story a little bit. And it starts with this, this introduction. So this is something that Jesus is is teaching. It's not an actual story. It's what we call a parable. So he's using an illustration to try to drive home a point that is very important to him. So this is how he starts the story. It says, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he, the father, divided his property between them, the two sons. So some, some background info that is important to know. In Jewish culture at this time, so in the family picture that he's painting, how this would be interpreted, uh, it, was, it was law, Jewish law, or Jewish how they structured their society, that when you had two children, the oldest would get what they call a double portion so nowadays, usually in wills, it's like if you have two kids, one gets half, one gets the other half. In Jewish society, the firstborn was seen as so important, um, so special, for lack of a better term, that they were given a double portion. So what that means is that the firstborn child would get 75% of whatever the family would leave them. And that leaves poor second secondborn. Anyone a secondborn out there? <laughs> poor secondborn would get 25%. Talk about a great way to create, you know, healthy sibling relationships from day one. Being like, oh, hi there, little 25%. You know, my sister, she used to make me feel bad that I was shorter than her. I was seven years younger. And like all these other things, like it's, it's not fair to be judged on things that are entirely out of your control. And yet I'm sure that created a not great dynamic between the older brother and the younger brother, <clears throat> 25%, 75%. That would create some animosity. Because in this culture, you had the air and you had the spare. You had the the throwaway baby, you know, just in case of an emergency, we got the backup, we're good. And so this kid probably grew up with this stigma in the back of his head that he didn't matter and that, you know, he probably wanted some of the responsibility and the shininess and the glory of being the older child, but he was never able to achieve it because of, you know, it's not like he's choosing what order he's born in, um, but that was just his law in life. <laughs> and so we see um, that there's this, this probably this animosity, this tension. And I, I, I understand it definitely because I have an older sister. Uh, she's seven years older than me, so which is seems like it's convenient because they're not close together. They're not gonna, you know, interact too much with each other. But it's really hard because. Uh, When I was going through my most awkward stages, she was just, like, excelling at life. Like, when I was in my carpenter jeans and my old navy fleece vest with, like, my bowl cut, she was off being literally the blonde head cheerleader in high school. Uh, She dated a star athlete. Like, she was all the perfection stereotypes. And when I say star athlete, I mean, it was just bowling. But still, like, star athlete, it was a thing. Uh, Actually, it wasn't bowling, but that's just... Joke. Uh, small town, you know, you don't have a lot of sports to choose from. So she was, she was excelling. She was so talented and social and had all these friends. And I was just super awkward. And, you know, I learned how to write the Elvish language and Lord of the Rings to pass secret notes to my friends. So that kind of shows you how well I was doing on the social chain. Uh, so <laughs> I find myself, <laughs> excuse me, empathizing with this younger son. Because, I mean, I was like, yeah, I get it, I get it, like, things are working out so well for the older sibling, and you're here, like, oh, man, corduroys again, Mom, like, this is okay, we're going to rock this as best we can, so... Uh, we see that he is, the younger son is probably uncomfortable with his life circumstance because there's no upward mobility, right? You can't change your birth order unless you like off the older sibling, and you're not gonna do that. That's kind of frowned upon. So we see that he starts to develop what I call like the should syndrome, like should dash syndrome, so should syndrome, where he starts probably thinking to himself, I should have this, like I should have more. I should enjoy my life, right? I should do what feels great. I should go for it. I should live my life with no rules. I should get out of this town. I should have fun. Uh, Dave Ramsey, which uh, Financial Peace University, it's something that he offers this class on how to understand money, and me and my husband are in it because money makes me dumb. I don't know about you guys. Uh, It's been super helpful, but he had this great quote in it. And he said, this generation now is most prone to this should syndrome because we feel like we want it, like we see what our parents have and we want it. We feel like, oh, I should automatically be able to have the house that my parents have. I should have, you know, I should have the respect in my career and the vacation days that my parents have. I should have the vacations that my parents are going on. But we forget that our parents have worked 20, 30, 30, sometimes more years to get where they are. And yet we have this mindset of like, I should be there already. I should, I should, I should, should syndrome. And yet this younger brother knows he'll never receive more than a, a you know, a, a quarter of his father's wealth. And, and what he does is kind of audacious. If, he, if we look at this verse again, he asks his father for his share which is pretty much saying to your parents, hey, uh, you're taking a long time to die, so could I just like get what you're going to leave me in the will? Like, Could we just skip ahead to that because like you're a lot healthier than I thought you'd be at this point, and you know, you're only 18 once, and I just want to live my best life. And yet we don't see the dad reprimand him. We don't see him getting offended or anything like that. He gives them what he asks, without any questions, without, you know, being like, oh, where are you going to invest that? And what startup are you pouring in? No, he just gives him his money. And then we see what happens next. Not many days later, uh, so it didn't take him too long to come up with a plan for this cash, the son gathered all he had, and took a journey to a far away co- country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And if you translate the reckless living, it also can translate to immoral living. So I think we know where his money went. Some ladies were very well supplied for in whatever town he found himself in. So he went to a foreign country, I feel like this is this matches a lot of the American teenager trajectory where foreign country, all right, I'm going to go to Oregon. <laughs> and you know, and then you see uh, he squandered all he had on on reckless living. Okay, I'm gonna go to U of O and join a frat because that's you know where Animal House is filmed, and that looks like a great college for me to go to. And then we see you know he spends the money at the club on the ladies. So we see that he he is finding himself, right? He wants to get out of the hometown where no one knows him, no one knows his mama, no one knows that he's supposed to be a good Jewish boy because this is the audience that Jesus is talking to. He wanted to escape his hometown where people knew him so he could reinvent himself. And we hear a lot, I don't know, I feel like it's coming up more and more about this this pressure to reinvent ourselves, right? Come up with your vision board and like, who do you want to be? And there's like all kinds of public speaking events where life coaches will tell you how to reinvent yourself. And reinventing yourself sounds great, but really if you trace it back to your source, it shows comparison. Because we're looking at our season in life. All right, where am I? Who, how do I define myself? And we're looking at other people. Ooh, like I like her lifestyle. I like his lifestyle. How do I reinvent myself to become more like them? We are comparing ourselves to other people. We want to get away from our current season in life, the current way that, that people around us may define where we're at in our life and who we are. We want to get away from that we want to get away from this current season. And it doesn't feel like a good season, right? It feels uncomfortable. You're like, oh, like, I just, I just want to be rich. Like, that season of life seems awesome where I'm not going paycheck to paycheck. And we don't see that there's any value in our current season and situation, we're like man i like in the winter time we're like i can't wait for it to be summer and now that i'm up here in this not so air conditioned room i'm like i can't wait for it to be winter we're in this back and forth where the current season that we're in we're always going to find faults and another season is always going to look better And this is the second son. He's saying, Mike, I don't want to stay on the farm where I'm second best and I have to follow all these strict Jewish rules because the Jewish people had hundreds and hundreds of rules that they had to follow to live their lives. I want to go where no one knows me, and I want to get more and be more and be whoever I want to be because everyone else has it easier than I have it. And I don't know if any of you guys went through that in high school where you're like, I cannot wait to leave because I just, I don't. what do you mean if I stay under your roof? I had to come home at a certain time and pay my cell phone bill and pay my car insurance how dare you right this is such a hard season in life that you're making me put away the dishes that you know even though you cooked food for me for free we get prickly we get uncomfortable we see (laughs) that our season in life is not great and everyone else's is better and we want what they have so I'm going to go live life on my term so he went to a faraway country because he was tired of living in this strict Jewish society of rules and regulations. He didn't want to be held accountable. He wanted to go where no one knew him. And we see that, that what has happened is that comparison has robbed us and this man from seeing a joy in our current season. Comparison robs us from seeing joy in this current season. You're like, you don't understand my season. It's really tough. Okay, I know a lot of people that are like, I am raising teenagers. No one wants this season. <laughs> but if you talk to some empty nesters, like the ones that the kids don't come back to stay in their basement, but like the ones where they go and they, you know, get their apartment and start their families, like they're like, oh man, I miss, I miss having my kids at home for every holiday. I miss this season. Or you talk uh, to people with the the little, that just have the newborn babies, that are like, I miss the season of sleep. And you're like, oh yeah, I get that. But other people are like, oh, I miss when my kid would let me actually hold them and hug them. And the people that are in the, the kid craziness, and they're looking at their, their friends that, that haven't started a family or aren't starting a family, they're like, oh man, I wish I was in that season. I miss date night. <laughs> and yet those people are like, oh. I can't wait till we start our family or I wish we were able to have kids and now we have to go this other route. We're always going to be looking at other people's seasons and looking at our own and saying, oh man, my season is awful. I can't wait till I get there. If I could just get there, I'd be happy. Comparison robs us from seeing the joy in our current season. And we hear this. We hear that people kind of rip themselves out of their current season and chase after something else, and it usually has really horrible consequences. Often for the people around us, we hear of men that say, "You know what? It's just too hard to be a father. It's too hard to stay in this marriage. I'm just going to leave." And we hear about families that are devastated from that. We hear. Uh, I know a lot of my women friends are po- are put in this position where they're like, "I have worked so hard to get my career to this point." but I know my my kids are acquiring more of me or my friendships, my mom needs me around to help around the house more. And now they're forced to decide between their career that they've scraped and worked so hard for and relationships that kind of are starving because they're not getting the attention that they need. People leave their seasons. They rip themselves out of their seasons prematurely and it causes havoc. It causes havoc and so we, we're we going to follow this trajectory with this, this young guy that, that chased after this feel-good kind of society. And it says when he had spent everything, all that 25%, when he had spent everything, because he wasn't working and spending, he was just spending, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. And this... This is life, right? It's Murphy's Law. It's when you splurge on that new purchase, some some, the hot water heater breaks, or the kid falls out of a tree, and you gotta have all these medical bills. Life sneaks up on you, usually the second after you splurge. I've found. Right? And we're in this society that says, like, treat yourself, like, you know, do this. So, you know, it's good. You know, you time. But usually I know when I treat myself, I get treated with an extra bill that comes out of nowhere. And it's not not such a treat. And this all comes from being in a comparison trap of spending money we shouldn't be spending and pursuing things that we don't need to pursue. Because when we're stuck in the comparison trap, we end up living life. And we deal with our finances, honestly, like it's our last day on earth, right? Like, maybe we can't afford that vacation, but we're just going to go for it anyways. And then life happens, something happens, and we find ourselves in a really bad spot. Even if it's just financially, we all know when, when the money is low and the bills are tight, what happens to your relationships? Number one cause of divorce is money fights, right? So when we're stuck in a comparison trap, when the only thing that matters is being as good as everyone else, is looking like our life is, not, you know, all together and as perfect and wonderful as everyone else, when that's our pursuit, it actually makes us spend our money and live our life like it's our last day on earth. And we, we don't want to save for the future anymore, right? Because <clears throat> nothing. everyone says, well, that's a godly thing, right? Because, you know, you don't know how many days you have, so, you know, YOLO, you should just live every day for the moment, I need to make sure that everyone sees how great my life is right now. If they don't know how good my life is right now, they're thinking that I'm a loser and I'm not, not with it. And that's because, let's be real, saving is not glamorous. Right, we don't post on our Instagram or our Facebook pictures of like going to the bank to make my deposit in my savings account. Like, ooh, look how much I put in my four hundred and one k this week. No, we're not posting that. We're posting the new boat that we got, the vacation that we're taking. This is what we're posting because we don't take pictures of savings account because we take pictures and promote our purchases. Purchases are way more glamorous than savings and being responsible, right? When we show our purchases, that gets way more social credit, they would say, than showing how fiscally responsible we're being. That's not as exciting. That doesn't buy us that social currency. And why do we do this? Why do we live life this way? And it's because we want everyone to see how well we're doing in this game of stuff. We want everyone to see how well we're keeping up with everyone else. And this is how the man lived his life. He spent a lot of money to impress people and probably treated people and then it ran out and life happened and there was a famine, something completely out of his control. And now he's in a really horrible predicament because he's far from home. He's kind of burnt that bridge in a lot of ways. And now what happens next? So we see he went and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. So first thing to note, he is now working for a non-Jewish person, which, like, if Jesus was spe- speaking this out loud to a Jewish audience, that would be like a, <gasps> like a gasp from the audience. For us, we're like, okay, like, that's fine. Uh, but we just need to know that that was shocking to them and uncomfortable for them that he was working for a non-Jewish person. And then secondly, what was he doing? He was, uh, he was in the fields to feed pigs. And now we know that pigs smell and they're kind of dirty. They're actually intelligent animals. Maybe you're like one of those person I want to pop Billy pig. But for Jewish people The issue with pigs was not how physically dirty they were, Um, they felt that pigs made them ceremonially unclean, which meant on the inside, like pigs made your soul dirty, pigs made your insides dirty, Pigs, uh, pigs made you a bad person and yucky and no one wanted to be around you on the inside, pigs had that effect on people, so the fact that he was now taking care of pigs, surrounded by pig filth, because pigs are not litter box trained, he He is not just physically filthy, he is on the inside as dirty as it gets for Jewish people. And it says he was longing to be fed with the pods that pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. So it's kind of like he thought this country was so great to live in because they don't follow any rules and it's great and you can do whatever you want and no one judges you. Well, guess what? When the the rug gets pulled out, no one takes care of you either. You're in this place of, of freedom, but when you need help, no one's going to help you because no one cares about you. There's no empathy in this land that he's settled in. And the thing to keep in mind is he's feeding these pigs scraps of food. But during a famine, imagine what those scraps look like. Because normally our scraps of food that we feed pigs are just, you know, whatever you don't finish on your plate. In a famine, you are eating every bit that you can. You're being as inventive with the recipes as to get. You're using bones and all kinds of other things to create some sort of sustenance, some sort of nourishment and so as bad as pig scraps were in a time of not famine during famine this was truly wretched stuff that they were just praying these pigs would eat and yet he was so hungry that even that looked good so he is in a really tough spot and so we—I know this may be hard for us to connect to you because you're like, "What's wrong with farming? We live in an agricultural society, and that's—you know Gleese has a job, and all these things—and we may not have ended up in our life at our lowest point. We would not say, "Well, that was the time I was with the pigs." So our lowest point can look completely different. But there probably has been a point in our life where we've made decisions, where we've chased after that, that I just wanna feel good. I just wanna enjoy myself. And we've chased after some things that landed us in a pig pen of sorts, that landed us in a mess. Like, I know this relationship isn't great, but it's nice to be liked and wanted. So I'm just gonna chase this. And then we find ourselves in a mess and we're like, ah, what do I do? What do I do? And so normally, What happens when we truly get to this rock bottom experience of chasing after good and then it leaves us stranded and hungry is we usually end up making a moral compromise because that's what happened. If this person is raised Jewish, they know I should not have anything to do with pigs and yet they're compromising their soul's cleanliness to just have some sort of job. He's made a huge moral compromise because of where he's landed because when we hit rock bottom, we're often faced with choices that come out of desperation, right? that you don't make desperate choices when you're not at rock bottom. You don't make desperate choices on like a, you're going, you're doing your groceries, you're having a normal day and you don't make a desperate choice. It doesn't work out that way. It's only when you hit rock bottom and you find yourself between a rock and a hard place. And how many would think that a desperate choice is probably a good decision, right? When you're between a rock and a hard place, there is no good decision. There is no great decision for you and for the people around you. You're usually making some sort of moral compromise you're like, oh man, the money's not in the bank, so I'll just take this money, you know, from that person and they won't know about it and I'll return it even though I don't have the money to. We make compromises when we find ourselves in these situations, And and Jesus is not trying to highlight like, oh, we make a compromise because we take a hard job. Like, that's not what this is about at all. Messy, hard jobs are important. And the people that do jobs that are messy and hard, like we value you and thank goodness for you because so many of us don't even have the strength and the mental capacity to do them. He's saying this is about a moral compromise. That's what's really going on here. That's what the comparison trap ultimately leads to. When we chase after what feels good and we find ourselves in a pinch, we make moral compromises to try to dig our way out. And maybe that's doing a shortcut in our job, claiming things we shouldn't claim on our taxes. We take advantage of other people's implicit trust. We do many small things. And that's the real rock bottom, isn't it? Because it's not a hard circumstance that's the worst. It's when our character gets eroded little by little because we chased after what felt good at the expense of what was good for us. So what happens next? It says, but when he, the son, came to himself, he said, he's thinking out loud here, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger I will arise and I'll go to my father and I'll say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And now this is kind of, I'm totally gonna undermine everything I've said for the last sermon and a half, because this is when the comparison trap has led him to this place, to the pig pen. And yet it's comparison that gets him out because he's looking at his current life circumstances and he's comparing himself not to his older brother anymore, That doesn't matter. Isn't it funny when life gets real, how the things that bothered him before don't bother you anymore? He's comparing himself to his father's servants, people he probably didn't even think about before. And he's saying, they're treated far better than I'm treated here in my current circumstance. It's better to be a servant or even a slave for my father to be in my current circumstance. So it's comparison that actually enables him to see clearly and to start making some better steps. He's saying to himself, even for a servant to be a servant, their worst day in my hometown is better than my best day. He starts to compare his current circumstances to his past circumstances, and he realizes that returning home as a servant or a slave was better than existing in this foreign land with foreign people that didn't care if he lived or died or compromised his core values. In this moment, he realizes that that, what that that season of life that felt so constricting and stifling is actually good. It was good for him. It helped him, kept him safe, and it kept him healthy emotionally and physically. The things that felt stifling, he now realizes are actually what's the best thing for him. And it's really hard for us when we get into these seasons of life uh, to view them as good, When we are uncomfortable, it's hard to view our current circumstances as good or healthy for us. We may say, I don't have a lot of money. But then we realize sometimes when you have more money, you're more irresponsible with it and you get yourself into more trouble. We may think that other seasons are better, but really there is good in every season. And that sometimes restrictions, not being able to do everything that we want to do is okay because it keeps us from wandering and ending up where we don't want to go. Because everyone wants to have all kinds of cash and stop working and go on some exotic vacation and have fun. But once you get there and Murphy's Law happens and life happens at you fast, the money and the fun can't protect you from life. They can't protect you from a loved one suddenly passing away. They can't protect you from being laid off from your job. They can't protect you from these things. The only thing that matters in the end are the people that we surround ourselves with, our tribe that's there to protect us and lift us up and encourage us, no matter what our season looks like. Like I had friends when I was still in the carpenter jeans and the bowl cut, and I know those people are with me for life because they were with me in puberty and when I was awkward and speaking Lord of the Rings languages. And I mean, those people, they got my back because they're with me in the ugly times, not just when I'm, I'm at my peak and I love, I love this place, Eastlake, kind of for that reason, because we try to do church for people that typically don't like church. And I know a lot of people are in that moment where things have fallen apart, and their season of life has led them down this, this really tough spot. And a lot of people want to come back to church. They're like, man, I, was, I went to church as a kid, and that was great, and then I got older, and I just didn't want to rules and like they would judge me. So I'm just going to go and do my own thing. And then life chewed you up and spit you out. And you're like, oh, like I, I kind of want to go back to that. I kind of want to go back to a structure where people are cheering me on and want the best for me instead of people that don't care the second life turns. I want to go back to a place where people are supporting me and trying to, to, to lead me in a direction where I'm healthier and making a difference in this world instead of people that are only interested in me when well, my bank account is a certain way or I'm driving a certain car or I have a certain status. People want to come back to church, but they're so scared to. They're so scared to, and sometimes it's for good reasons. Sometimes you're in a church that uh, we like to call people at church burn. You had a bad experience because, unfortunately, churches are full of people. <laughs> It's like the worst part about church is that there's people in it because people are imperfect and imperfect people can hurt other people. Hurting people hurt other people and so there's good reasons to have church burn but people are so scared to turn back because they're thinking well if you knew what I was doing... Pastor Margaret, you'd be, you'd be out there, you'd, see, you'd have a guy on the walkie-talkie being like, oh no, here comes Roger, we've got to lock the doors, can't let him in here, because he's a big mess up, and he's done this, and if you only knew, if you only knew what he did, if you only knew his choices, he would not be welcome in here. I have, I have family that won't come to church, which is like, I'm a pastor, and I have family that won't come, because they're like, oh no. If I walk through that door, like God knows what I did, and he's gonna send a lightning bolt on, and the roof's gonna collapse, and I tell him like, you can come. You can come to East Lake. Like the roof may collapse, but it's nothing to do with like your moral character. It's just an old building. Like I'm sorry, don't. It's just coincidence. It's just a coincidence. Uh, but there's people that feel like that, and I and I get it because we get so scared of what awaits us. If I get close to God, is He just gonna ream me out for everything wrong that I've done? If I try this faith thing again, is it just, am I just going to keep meeting people that make me feel bad about myself because I'm not perfect? But the best thing about this story is it's not a son returning to a church, it's a son returning to a father. Because this story isn't about a church, it's a story about a father. Father. And not, I don't want to say your father because a lot of people struggle with the father thing because they didn't have a great father figure in your life because fathers are humans and can make real mistakes. This is a story that Jesus is teaching because the church in Jesus' time, and I hate to say it a little bit in our time too, was really harsh on people that did not make the grade that did not follow all the rules, that didn't live the perfect life, that didn't look a certain way, that didn't act a certain way, that didn't fit a certain mold. If you did not fit the bar, if you you weren't this high, you were not allowed in because you were dirty. They didn't want anything to do with you. And so he's telling this story to break that down because it is of the utmost important that we as children of a heavenly father know what actually awaits us when we decide to come home. So, what what awaited the son? Was it a locked door? Was it an accusation? Was it an argument? Was it a question about what have you been up to while you've been gone? Let's see. Let's see what actually awaited him. So he arose and came to his father. And this is a short sentence, but keep in mind he was in a different country, so he had to make a long journey back. And I imagine on that long journey back, he was like constantly being like, nope, I can't do this. And like turning around and like psyching himself out because he's so scared of what the reaction at home is going to be. So he has to keep saying no, no, nope, no. Nope. It's better to be a slave or a servant with my father than this situation. I got, I got to bite the bullet. I got to bite my pride. I got to go back. And as he's going back, he's trying to figure out ways to diminish his father's anger because he knows his dad's going to be so disappointed and angry that he just wasted all of this money. And so he's probably rehearsing his speech, right, his apology speech. Who's been there in the driveway? And you're like, oh man. Mom's gonna be really mad, and I gotta like work on what I'm gonna say and like prepare. (laughs) And so the whole road, he's probably working on this speech on what he's gonna say. Well, what happens? Well, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. The second that his son came within sight, the father ran full speed, nonstop, took him in his arms before he even knew his son was going to apologize. He could have been coming back to, you know, borrow more money or something. He didn't ask any questions. He took his son back, kissed him, hugged him. And in fact, one of my favorite parts is that the father cuts off his apology. He actually like stops him mid monologue. And so we see it right here. And the son said to him, Father, he's going through his like monologue, he's been practicing, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And he's about to say, like, hire me as your slave. And the father cuts him off, and he says to his servants, quickly bring the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate, for my son was dead, and is alive again he was lost and is found and as they began they began to celebrate so some quick things to point out the son was probably shaking he was probably so nervous about this meaning on the whole journey back And yet the father cuts him off, and he does three things. He gives him three things, and these are symbolic, and the father did this on purpose to send a message. The first thing he gives his son is his robe, the best robe. And what a robe represented in this time that the Jewish audience would understand is a robe offers protection. When you put a robe on someone, you're saying, you are under my protection. Whatever your fights are are my fights. Whatever your debts are are my debts. Whatever you're going through, I am on your side. So instantly, his father meets him, puts this robe on him and says, whatever you're fighting, whatever you're dealing with, son, we're in this together now. Next, he puts a ring on his finger and rings in these times often had a family uh, sigil or symbol or crest or something that would say, I am of this family. So he cuts his son off by saying, son says, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And the father says, yeah, you are. You're my kid. I'm stamping you with this. I'm giving you this ring so everyone can see that you are mine. I'm not revoking your sonship. I'm making sure everyone knows that you're my kid and I'm proud of you. And I'm thrilled to have you back home. And the third thing he gives them is his sandals. Now we may think, oh, he was just really poor, like he was in a rough situation, but I mean, he just traveled across country, no shoes would be really rough. So uh, when I researched this a little bit, I saw that he probably actually took off his shoes when he got closer to home, because when you took off your shoes in the Jewish society, it was a sign of mourning, of repentance, and actually they quote it as a sign of violent emotion, so he took off his shoes and he was cuz he was shaking with this like he's i have messed up so bad so i want to make sure when they see me come around the corner that they can see without me even saying anything how wretched i feel about myself and what does the father does says none of that <laughs> i'm going to put shoes on your feet because you are not in mourning You don't need to grieve over your mistakes. You don't need to come crawling and begging. I'm putting shoes on your feet because you're my kid and I don't care. He put shoes on his feet to cover them, saying he stopped his grieving, stopped this violent emotion in his tracks and covered him with love. There is nothing to mourn. And I feel like so many of us have been in this place in our faith walk or journey or exploration, where we see that there is something irresistible when it comes to this church thing with this God thing, and we want so badly to get close to it. We want so badly to get out of this season of making compromises and having nothing and just being hungry emotionally, starving for protection and love and inclusion and we get so scared we don't want to make the journey. We don't want to come with an eyesight because we're scared at the reception that we'll have. We're scared that if I actually open my Bible, I'm, not gonna, I'm just gonna feel bad about myself because God's gonna call me out. I'm scared if I go to a church and they find out about me, they're gonna tear me down and kick me out and lock the doors. I'm scared if I open up to anyone that they're gonna judge me. I'm scared. If God knows everything about me, I don't wanna have a conversation with him because I don't, like, I don't wanna be called out. I don't wanna be made, feel to, made to feel worse than I already feel. And so many of us hold back we stay just out of eyesight because we're so scared of what that meeting is going to look like. We're so scared of being close to Jesus. And yet this is the picture that He is, Jesus is intentionally painting about how God feels about us which is the second that we lean in, the second that we come out of eyesight, he is running at us full speed to put his protection to say your fights are my fights, to put his ring of inclusion to say you are in this family with me and to put sandals on our feet to say whatever you're feeling, whatever you're going through, this guilt, whatever you're repeating in your head, whatever stops you from coming to me at this point is null and void. It does not matter anymore. And yet I will say that the more important part of this story is actually what happens next. But you'll have to come back next week. (laughs) So two takeaways. Uh, I would say week one, to sum it up, uh, for those that weren't here or those are here, just a refresher. The takeaway is that comparison creates a roadblock between us and other people. Because when we're focused on ourselves, we can't focus on other people's struggles and we can't strengthen each other and we can't cheer each other on. And week two, comparison creates a roadblock between us and God because we just feel unworthy. We feel totally out of the family when God wants to draw us in. And so we need to kill comparison in its tracks so we don't have these roadblocks anymore. So my, my two takeaways for you guys are those, but your question for the week is this. For week one, is comparison affecting my ability to relate to other people? And then the second one is Is comparison affecting my ability to trust what God says about me, which are good things? Is comparison affecting my ability to trust God in my season of life, no matter what it looks like? We're going to pray, uh, then I'll share some announcements, say a benediction and send you on your way, but would you guys pray with me first? God, we are so grateful that. We can see in this a clear picture of how you feel about us, God, that you're not waiting for us to actually be brave enough to pray to you so that you can just give us a list of all the ways we've messed up and fallen short, God, but you are just waiting anxiously on the edge of your seat for us to to turn towards you so that you can run and meet us with love and inclusion and acceptance where we're at, God, no matter what it looks like, no matter how messy it is. God, help us to to seize that truth when people want to tell us that we aren't good enough, when comparison wants to make us feel like we're so much less than everyone else and so much less than what we should be if we're going to church. God, help us to seize the truth that we are enough and that we are wanted and that we are included in your family. In your name we pray these things. Amen.